0: Okay, hello. This is Robin Josh with another episode of Straight Talk, No Chaser, where we give the real facts of a criminal case and we analyze it from both the prosecution's viewpoint as well as the defenses. For this episode, we will discuss the Richard Brooks case that recently took place a few weeks ago in Atlanta, Georgia. So I'll briefly go over the facts as I understand them, understanding that I may leave out a few things. If I do feel free um, to fill in the gaps. But what we have is that Mr. Rashard Brooks had apparently fallen asleep at the drive-through of a Wendy's, a call for service was made, which is when 911 is notified. Officer Bronson, or former Officer Bronson, arrived on scene, knocked on the window, attempted to wake up Mr. Brooks, asked Mr. Brooks to drive his car to one of the vacant parking spots. Mr. Brooks appears to have fallen back asleep. Bronson goes back, wakes him up again, tells him to move. Uh, He drives it to the parking spot. About 15 minutes later or so, Former officer Rolf is on scene. He is shown on the body cam or dash cam. Body cam is the camera the officers wear on their persons. Dash cam being the camera on their police vehicles. But on the video, you see conversations between Rolf and Bronson. Bronson is speaking to Rolf, telling him that Brooks, Mr. Brooks had fallen asleep. He had been asked to move twice that Bronson and Bronson and Rolf of the two police officers that Bronson could smell an odor of alcohol from the interior of the vehicle as well um, detected slurred speech and red glassy eyes on Mr. Brooks. Bronson, excuse me, Rolf approaches Mr. Brooks, has him step out of the vehicle, has him some form, some perform some field um standard field sobriety tests. Um, shortly thereafter, Rolf makes the determination that he has sufficient PC or probable cause to arrest Mr. Brooks for DUI. As they are attempting to place Mr. Brooks under arrest, he becomes combative. There is a struggle between the officers and Mr. Brooks. A taser is discharged. Mr. Brooks takes Officer Roth's taser runs off as he is running, appears to be maybe 15, 20 feet ahead of him. Um, You can see Mr. Brooks turn over his shoulder, discharge the taser, which is the second time that taser had been discharged. And then you see Roth raise his firearm and shoots three times, striking Mr. Brooks twice in the back. Mr. Brooks is taken to the hospital and later dies as a result of his injuries. Both Rolfe and Bronson has have been charged. Rolf has been charged with, I believe, 11 offenses, including felony murder and aggravated assault regarding Mr. Brooks. And Mr. Bronson has been charged with about three or four offenses, including aggravated assault on Mr. Brooks. Uh, before we get into the charges on the officers, let's talk about the initial scene how DUI or as we call it DWI works so tell us your thoughts or feelings about that initial interaction between the officers and Mr. Brooks the initial interaction to me in my
1: viewing appears to be pretty standard protocol for an officer either stopping a vehicle for well it's different because in this case you have a Wendy's employee that's called uh, has a call for service that goes out saying that someone's fallen asleep uh, in the drive through So even in the first initial interaction with Mr. Brooks, Officer Brosnan, who's the first on the scene, he doesn't appear to be handling the situation as if it's a DUI initially that, that, that kind of has to be investigated, which is also why you see when he knocks on the, the window of Mr. Brooks and wakes him the first time and asks him to move to the space, he allows him to move his car, uh, and parking in the parking space from the drive through line. Um, if this had been, you know, hey, this guy is drunken and disorderly, he's gotten in his car and now he's falling asleep in the drive through line, I think the interaction initially would have looked a lot different because they would have had probable cause or at least a reasonable suspicion to believe uh, he was under the influence uh, of alcohol when they arrived on the scene, and that wasn't present in this case. Um, on the second time, once he pulls into the space and he begins the interaction, again, I think, think things go fairly standard for a protocol for establishing or investigating whether the occupant or the, the, the operator of the vehicle is driving under the influence of alcohol. It's important to note that um, you don't have to actually be operating the vehicle on a highway or on a road. The vehicle just has to be on, and you have to be proven to show that you've been under the influence of alcohol. Um, there, there is some debate in this case and this may be getting ahead but i think it's important to note that there's at least anecdotal evidence of other officers and other situations where it appears that this situation is pretty well in hand and taken care of by the time brosnan and officer Officer brosnan and former officer roth uh, initiate communications with mr brooks and have a discussion with him at that point I have heard personally anecdotal evidence of similarly situated people being given the opportunity to either drive their vehicle home and the officer follow them or have someone, have them call someone that they trust a family member or a friend to come to that location and drive their vehicle home for them or pick them up and drive them home. So they don't go back out on the street after drinking. Um, So that anecdotal evidence exists. And I think it's, at least reasonable for any human being that's looking at the situation to say did you really have to take it to the point of an arrest or make it a bigger issue than it was he did fall asleep in a drive-through he wasn't posing a a necessary threat to anyone at that time Um, obviously if he's pulled over on the side of the road driving the vehicle that's that's a much different scenario Um, but at the same time you, you you look at How that plays out and you have these um, groups and like Mothers Against Drunk Driving, MAD, that has made a a large push because it it has been shown that statistically a lot of lives are lost every single year due to drunk driving. There's been a major crackdown nationwide uh, in some states more harshly than others on law enforcement's um, really cracking down and issuing tickets and citations for Drunk driving and it's also seen uh, an uptick in what courts are even willing to negotiate on when it comes to drunk driving to handle that public policy issue of not putting other lives at risk because you've decided to voluntarily go out and have a couple of drinks and now you're too intoxicated or you're beyond the degree of intoxication that has been established to operate a motor vehicle properly and safely. So. In terms of the initial interaction and the conversation, you know that first whole almost half an hour that goes by appears to be very standard. Uh, you did mention in the facts that they went through a field sobriety test. Uh, he went through the HGN test, which is uh, a test that measures how your eye movement works. There's about six clues involved with that. The degree of deviation and twitching of your eyes that can indicate your level of intoxication, field sobriety test. And then he was also given a breathalyzer um, and that was on the scene by off, former officer Roth, uh, Roth, and he, he he did blow above the legal limit, which was .08. He blew a, I believe the the facts were uh, the the breathalyzer showed he blew a .108. So at this time during the interaction, before he's uh, attempted to be put under arrest, officers have probable cause to to conduct the arrest and to place him under arrest based on. Uh, his field sobriety test, the FSTs that were performed, and a breathalyzer on the scene. Now, that's not admissible in court. So if he was was taken into the, the jail, he would have to perform another breathalyzer. That's the breathalyzer test that would have been admissible in court. But unfortunately, as we know, it, it, it escalated shortly thereafter being asked to put his hands behind his back and be placed under arrest. And it ended much more tragically than it needed to.
0: Yeah, I'm not as offended by the... Initial interactions, if they're like some some other people say, obviously, you know, officer can do a solid and say, look, you're too intoxicated, uh, you know, probably need to go home. And there are maybe some issues or some problems you may have with the prosecution when the person is in a, a parking lot. But like you said, so under DWI or DUI laws, the vehicle has to be in operation. As long as the engine is turned on, operation aspect or that part you have to prove, that's satisfied. Or even when the car isn't in operation, you see a lot of times where they'll check the hood um, and they'll argue, well, the hood was warm, which meant right. the car had recently you know, been, been turned on. Uh, so I agree that, yeah, they could have just said, look, you know, call a ride. You say you just left somewhere. You don't live too far. Let somebody come out here and get you um but for them approaching someone in a parking lot and the car is on or like I said been turned on then i agree that they could have you know gone through the steps of seeing as the person under arrest i think where it does get kind of murky if we were just looking at a straight DWI case um i think like from a defense viewpoint is so much time passes from when initial interaction to when they do the field sobriety test, or when they make the determination to place under arrest. So an argument would be that obviously people who are intoxicated don't stay intoxicated forever. Um, blood alcohol content rises, blood alcohol content lowers. Um, so I'd argue that at that point where they first have that interaction, you know, he's not over the the legal limit of .08, But you guys take so long and don't know what you want to do. And that by the time twenty minutes later, when you actually have them blow on the breathalyzer, at that point is raised. But does that mean that he was over the limit when the car was in operation? And then you probably have some other proof issues of in terms of well, well that's a well, yeah. I didn't know what that's, you that's. a
1: great that. I think that's a great okay. point. Honestly, uh, and and that's not one that's that's widely being circulated. I'm glad you brought that up because there. There is an argument that if he's just come from having a couple of drinks, which on the video it shows that he says he was out for his girl's birthday, his wife's birthday, uh, and they had a couple of mixed drinks. Initially, he says they're margaritas. He had one and a half margaritas. We know that's made with uh, liquor. Uh, he, he admits at some point during the conversation that it was top shelf, so it's, it's a high grade uh, of liquor that's being drank. Uh, there, there is at least an argument, if he's coming directly from that, that dinner or that, that, that date with his wife for his birthday, that when he pulls into the drive-thru, he also says he's having a conversation with his wife about what she wants to eat. Uh, she can't figure out what she wants to eat. He's been in a drive-thru line for a long time, that there is an argument that his out, blood alcohol level has not reached the point of the legal limit at that point and definitely has not exceeded it but throughout the course of him uh, talking with officers, could have risen above the the legal limit. Because it's not illegal to have a drink for a, a, a celebration or go to a bar and have a drink or have drinks with dinner. What becomes illegal is when you become so intoxicated that you can't operate a motor vehicle safely. And there's no facts to support that at any point during his drive, there's not a bolo that was issued for his vehicle from other people on the road saying this guy's driving unsafely or he's swerving. We believe he's under the influence of alcohol in the drive through line. He's not getting too close to people or creating any issues. He doesn't seem to be having any type of interactions with anyone to establish that anyone assumed he was under the influence of alcohol at all. And even officer Brosnan doesn't make that assumption directly by allowing him to, you know, take his car out of park, pull out of the drive through line and park the vehicle in Parking lot. So, I, as far as a defense attorney or from a defense standpoint, that's a fair argument to at least raise. Is that there's no facts or evidence supporting his blood alcohol concentration was above the legal limit prior to the nearly thirty-minute conversation before he's issued the breathalyzer. I think that's a solid, a solid point to make on the on the topic.
0: Yeah, and that might get into um, in terms of we say extrapolation of there's certain things that. Only an expert can talk about in a trial, and the rate that alcohol metabolizes that probably fall under in terms of what an expert um, can argue. But I think it's certainly in terms of a way that maybe it can be inferred, if not directly, if you're just talking to the judge, but if you're maybe in front of a jury. Um, But but let's say like, uh, unfortunately, it never got to that point. Um, So even before. Mr. Brooks takes off running. If it just ended there, then you would have had Mr. Brooks would have been charged with um, what we talked about DWI, um, assault on an officer. You know, assaults can be felony or misdemeanor when you're dealing with law enforcement. I, I, when I saw it, I, I thought it would fall under like misdemeanor, uh, you know assault. Um, you have the removing the the weapon um, or the the taser from the officer. Yeah, fleeing arrest, um, you know, another crime. Um, but so let's go from, I guess, then obviously from from that point, we address in terms of those potential misdemeanors that that would have that could have been present to where you have the officer chasing Mr. Brooks and Mr. Brooks being in possession of a a taser that. Is capable of causing some some injury, obviously, and then the whole adage: anything can be considered a deadly weapon depending on how it's used. But start from that point, and uh, you know, let me know in terms of what your what your thoughts were about that.
1: Well, I think when when the altercation and and and, and I looked up the the attorney's statements and what they're going to be arguing for the case of specifically. Officer Rolfe, who's facing these 11 counts that he's been charged with, is, you know, their viewpoint or his viewpoint is, you know, while it can be seen as misdemeanor assault, because it's kind of a struggle. Uh, it doesn't seem to be um, melee style. We're not squaring off and, and throwing hands and landing lots of blows. But uh, punches were landed on the officer. Uh, and then at one point during the altercation, as they're going to the ground, uh, Officer Brosnan kind of gets – gets taken down or is, is, a, is grabbed by Brooks, and that's either going to be played out as he's trying to get his balance and not fall down and, and inadvertently pulls him down or is attempting to slam the officer down. That's going to be played by both sides different ways. So you have to look at that and see that that's a double-edged sword that's probably going to be used factually at trial. So you, you have those situations occur, and then under those circumstances, obviously the defense for the officers is going to be that that's, that's felony assault, uh, on behalf of Mr. Brooks, it's felony obstruction of an officer. Those are things that they've already said that they're 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 claiming uh, that will be they will be arguing under Georgia law. And then I think the other one they brought up was uh, in in taking officer. It's important to know who's in the facts to get this straight because I did a lot of research on this. In the facts, he actually takes Officer Brosnan's taser, which means Officer Roth still has his taser which is important under the circumstances as to what happens after the assault with the officers and the affray takes place. So punches are thrown, Officer Rolf's punched, Officer Brosnan gets taken down, he hits his head. We find out later that he did suffer a concussion from hitting his head on the pavement. And he's able, Mr. Brooks is able to, to take away the taser and it was fired twice. So a taser was the, the fired during this affray twice in the attempt to subdue Mr. Brooks and none of the prongs were able to attach. So there's there's three three shots that can be fired from a taser. So the, the taser that Mr. Brooks has from Officer Brosnan has been fired twice. He's got one shot left. Uh, but Officer Roth has his taser that is fully functional and working.
0: That's right. You so, you see on the video, Roth drops his taser um, and switches right. hands, switches, puts the gun in another hand. Okay.
1: So that's where we get into you know the discussion on. And I, and I think the discussion is mixed here especially from uh, da Howard in in the prosecutor's office several weeks ago in an a, a protester case uh, he claimed that the officer pointing his taser at one of the protesters was an assault with a deadly weapon or a, an attempted assault with a deadly weapon because that a taser was a deadly weapon he says that three times in a press conference in this press conference he says that the taser is not a deadly weapon so there's A little bit of issue in the DA's office as to how they're viewing what a taser is and the lethal force behind it. We know from our experience and from what we've seen and what we've heard testified to, it depends on where you shoot someone with the taser as to whether it can be deadly. A direct shot to the chest can result in putting someone into cardiac arrest. A shot to in the face can also be deadly because of what it can do to the brain. Uh, So I I do think there is an argument to be made on both sides as to which way they're going to use a taser as a weapon. Is it going to be considered a weapon for the purposes of deadly force, as was claimed two weeks back when an officer was charged with that charge for using a deadly weapon for pointing a taser? Is it not going to be considered that because of the escalation to Officer Roth throwing down his taser? and pulling a sidearm and firing a handgun, which we obviously know is a deadly weapon. It, there's been some back and forth on that, which makes it, it muddies the waters uh, in, in terms of deciding or determining in that interaction what the best course of action was. I think the argument that Officer Roth made that he didn't know if it was a gun that was being fired at him, he saw the flash. I don't think that argument plays well uh, in terms of a legal defense or in front of a jury, uh, because he knew that the, a taser had been taken from Officer and That's been communicated in the, the affray, the interaction. Uh, that He knows that's going down, or at least there's a reasonable belief to know that's going down, because he didn't have any weapons on him during the, the, the courteous or cordial interaction or communication that occurred before the assault happened. So those are some facts and some, some things that I know that the defense attorneys for Officer Roth have brought up and some issues with how they're describing or making determination on how they're going to consider the taser under these circumstances, based on how they've characterized it or categorized it in in, in other situations that happened just earlier in the same month. So those are just some things in, in my research and watching different videos from different circumstances. Uh, obviously, we're, we're heavily tied into uh, protester defense and and seeing that in our own city, that's, those are issues that we're, we're all concerned with, especially those in the legal field that are providing defense work. Uh, so those are, those are definitely considerations and things to consider when you're analyzing the situation fully. Um, and then we can go into more detail. I think you wanted to go into more detail after he's running and, and fleeing because there is some statutory law against using deadly force when someone is fleeing to prevent their escape.
0: Yeah. So before, yeah, before that, um, yeah, and I, I've heard people raise that issue about what Howard said earlier regarding the officers pulling out the taser on the. I think they were like college students. Um, yeah. At the time, that doesn't bother me uh, as much, or I wouldn't be worried about that if I was the the prosecution, because those statements. Wouldn't be the statements attributed to the elected DA wouldn't be uh, admissible. Uh, I think of my I think of it more in terms of you know we mentioned earlier anything can be considered a deadly weapon. I, I think you know you alluded to it depending on how it's used. You know a hammer by itself is a tool, um, but if someone takes a hammer to somebody's head. Then they're going to be charged with assault with a deadly weapon, with intent to kill, or inflicting serious injury, based on you know our North Carolina statute. So, uh, but that's a, and I I think that's a good point that it's Bronson's taser, um, and as well as I think it's a good point in terms of what Ross's attorney is saying. Because statements made by Rolf's attorney can't be attributed to Rolf. But right. we now have you know an idea in terms of potential defense. Right. Um, but if you look fast forward to trial, um, if this does go to trial and that is what and the defense wants to be able to elicit this is Rolf's mindset, Rolf would have to testify. Um, mm and I don't know at this point if he has given a statement. It's sort of in terms of when, you know, I guess prior conversations during any type of investigation, police officers have to cooperate um, in terms of with the investigation, but that can run contrary to what you would advise a client in a criminal case. He was fired. I can't remember. Was he fired like soon? I mean, fairly quickly.
1: Yeah, he was fired. Officer Brosnan, to date, now this may have changed from my research, is on administrative leave. Right. Uh, but uh, Officer Roth
0: was uh, almost immediately fired. Yeah. So if he's immediately fired, I don't know if he gains a whole lot then at that point to say, well, let me go ahead and, and give a statement. Um, right. FOP would probably have like a representative, fraternal order, police, a representative like contact immediately, and but you know, like I say, we, we just don't know. I, I probably wouldn't. Have advised him, not probably. I, I know we wouldn't advise him like to give a statement right then. <laughs> no. uh, anyway, but um, if he gets to that point, he can, you know, determine when to best get that information out. He already have like the um, uh, his attorney getting it out. So back to if it's if you're from from the prosecution's viewpoint, you have a potential suspect being chased by the officer. Probably 15, 20 feet, if I'm eyeballing it, um, ahead of Rolf, he, uh, Brooks has a taser that has been discharged at this point three times, um, so it cannot. Twice. 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 I believe I believe
1: the standard issue taser for police officers that carry <clears throat> can ask three up? charges. Okay. So I think it was discharged from my recollection of the facts, from several different sources, seems to elicit that it was discharged twice during the initial altercation. In an attempt to subdue Mr. Brooks, none of the prongs hit Mr. Brooks or subdued him in any way. Uh, and I haven't seen anything from an autopsy report that shows that he had any prongs or any puncture right. wounds from the taser actually landing or being effectively used uh, by Officer
0: Brossom. But he so when takes- when Brooks fires it, it can't be fired again. Yeah, when Brooks fires
1: it, the, when he turns back as he's fleeing, and fires it at Officer Roth, that should be in essence, and of course, this is a factual determination. Whether Officer Roth fired a tas- his taser as well and Brosnan, I'm unclear on that detail. But if Officer Brosnan is the one who fired the taser twice, because he's got the one he's got the, he's the one with the taser in his hand at the time. Uh, if he's fired it twice, then technically speaking, factually speaking, if that's a three-charge taser like his, his typical standard issue, that's the only shot that he can take at Officer Roth as he's fleeing.
0: Right. So that's one and done. So that can't be fired again. He's about 20 feet ahead of him. If we're like from the the prosecution's case, then the argument is that Brooks isn't in possession of a deadly weapon. Um, But then I guess like I said from the defense's viewpoint, how do you attribute that knowledge to Roth or even that in that, you know, those moments, everything's happened like so quickly that Rolf is conscious of this taser has been fired three times. Um, and as I'm running after Brooks, uh, I know that it's been fired three times, cannot be fired again. Um, and, then and he's got three
1: shots, and he's technically got three shots with his taser left yeah. that he can use if he gets close enough to subdue Mister Brooks, and conduct a much more safe arrest that ends in, and hopefully not the loss of life, uh, under the circumstances. So that, but again, that, again, that's also a factual determination. If both Officer Roth and Brosden had both fired their taser during the altercation, which I'm unclear of, so I want to be clear on that. I don't want to yeah, I've heard that. But if, if, that's, if that is the case or they bring that out, then there could be the argument from the defense that he's got more than one shot that he could use. And so that's why if you consider it or you have expert testimony to come in to say it is the use of deadly force or you establish that it's deadly force, if he has a second shot, then that would go against the grain of, uh, you know, him pulling his sidearm being a, less reasonable under the circumstances. But I think more clearly, Or what I've seen or what at least I've read is that the two discharges are most likely attributed to Officer Brosnan's taser, taser, which to your point is saying that when he fires that third shot at Officer Roth, which the facts do show that there was some slight burns, uh, it was a near miss, so he was almost hit with, with the taser shot, at least that's what some sources say, that he no longer is in possession of a weapon that can be used in the same manner to to apply deadly force uh, in any any type of way after that shot's fired.
0: Yeah, so that's what I was trying to get in terms of if Rolf knows that it's been fired, discharged three times, can't be fired again, um, then you say, okay, well, that raises it from the prosecution's viewpoint. Um, but how, if at all, does it change that if, if you say, or the argument is that Rolf does, one, either he doesn't know that has been fired three times, meaning that he's not conscious of that fact, has been fired three times, uh, or, or you say, or if it hadn't, for instance, Rolf, if the argument is, and Rolf would have to testify that, you know, the question on, you know, cross from the prosecution, well, you know, you know how many times a taser can be fired, you've been trained on using this taser, you know, it only can be fired three times, you knew based on that video that it had been fired three times, Um, isn't that true? And either this comes out direct of Roth or Ernest Cross, but if Roth testifies that in that moment, he wasn't thinking about that, that right. it, was, it wasn't real. It, it just didn't register. It had been fired three times. So he thought that that taser still could have been used. So if you say the taser stood, if, it, if he thought it could have been used or whether it could have been used, does that change it? Does that raise it from where deadly force would have to be used by by Roth? If you have a suspect fleeing with a fully charged taser, does that change the analysis at all? For instance, he's yeah, not think, putting porch torch off with it. He's trying to get away, obviously, from him. Right, which
1: I, I think is a, is a significant factual determination in the case. He's not stopping to, you know, quote unquote, not attributing this to the law, but stand his ground and turn and re-engage the officer. He's attempting to flee and escape. He's using the, the taser as a means, I guess, to help him forward that, that effort. But the determination on whether the force is, is excessive that's used in court by the judge, because as we fast forward to the trial thing, as, as is our, our means and modus operandi to do, is about whether it's reasonable. It's not, it's not necessarily per se about whether it's right or wrong. It's about whether, and this is where you're saying Roth has to take the stand and testify, whether it was reasonable for him to assume that there's an immediate threat of injury, serious bodily injury or death resulting from this interaction with Mr. Brooks to use the amount of force that he used. And that's complex. It's contextual. uh, It takes time. And that's based on the totality of the facts and the circumstances. So clearly, the totality of the facts and circumstances are that he had knowledge he takes the stand let's stay hypothetically he takes the stand and he has knowledge that Brosnan's fired that taser twice he knows that a standard police issue taser has three charges he knows that Mr. Brooks has fired that third charge it has no charges left is it reasonable then that he uses his sidearm and fires it three times striking Mr. Brooks in the back while he's fleeing to stop him and conduct the arrest. Then I think it falls to the statute under Georgia law. We have a similar statute in North Carolina where you cannot use deadly force to prevent the escape of a suspect uh, that is not posing a threat of serious bodily injury or death to you or is a threat to the
0: community at large that he's in. You know, so it goes back to what you're saying earlier in terms of the argument would be by both sides, whether that taser would constitute a deadly weapon. I think, if right, you I think that's going
1: to be, well, I think I'm that's going to be more of a I'll say if you
0: change, the facts, so put, if you change right. the facts and put like, um, well, not don't say like Mr. Brooks, but just say like John Doe, put a handgun in John Doe's hand. John Doe is running from an officer. Um, I think that's more like clear cut because even, and, and, and I know, uh, and people may take, you know, um, offense or umbrage of that is saying that if an officer is chasing somebody and the person is running away, the officer can shoot. Uh, but I think then there's an argument, well, that person is clearly in possession of a deadly weapon. And if the person has turned and didn't fire, but pointed it at the officer, then the officer is, is going to be, I'll be counted as justified. Um, but I think I'm, sorry, I'm saying that would be in terms of the argument and that if it's not a deadly weapon, he's not Based on like you can't chase a fleeing suspect, um, he's not going to be able to use deadly force. And then if it is a deadly weapon, then I guess that that does change your analysis. Sorry, I was trying right. to get that out. I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead.
1: No, I didn't. I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. It it is a good point, and I think the I think the case does turn on that more than people, more than some people that I've talked to want it to or believe it should. But I, I think that's a factual determination that the court has to make. Uh, whether they're going to consider a taser deadly force and whether you can substantiate whether it was reasonable for Roth in the moment after just being in a, in an altercation with the suspect, uh, having his other officer's tasers taken from him, if in that moment he is calculating to a certain degree of certainty how many shots are left in that taser and that's supposed to limit his ability to act uh, under other circumstances, like we're saying with a John Doe who's got a gun, let's say he's got a revolver and five shots have been fired, he turns and points the gun and fires a single shot, that doesn't really change the analysis. It's still a deadly weapon. He still fired it at the officer, even though now he's out of rounds, it still it still wouldn't negate the officer's reasonable use of force to use his sidearm in, in response uh, to prevent anything further from from happening or taking place. So uh, I think it turns on how they're going to describe that um, more so than than has been reported or has been put forward in the media or has even been put forward uh, by by some of the investigators that are involved with the GBI and, and others in the situation. I think that's going to be more of a linchpin to determining how this case turns out with the charges that Rolf is facing. Uh, than we originally believed from the video footage that was
0: released. You mentioned GBI. I wanted to touch on that real quick. Georgia um, has, well, the Atlanta Police Department, I've heard, has this longstanding policy that whenever there is an officer involved shooting, the Georgia Bureau of Investigations is, or, or is contacted. And I think mean, that's good. I think that's how it should always be. You should always have a third party, neutral third party come in and analyze these cases, because I think the relationship between the prosecutor's office and your police department can't, even if it's just appearance wise, can be too close. I mean, they are the ones that are bringing the cases and prosecuting the cases. So GBI is always brought in for officer involved shootings, but it seems unique in this aspect that the GBI has not finished their investigation and the prosecutor's office has already conducted their own independent investigation and made a determination to bring charges. I was speaking like to a another attorney and I was saying, well, that's what happens with our clients, in terms right. of we can always say, Hey, you know, you need to talk to this person, this person. We our client was thinking that his life was in danger or this was gonna happen. And of the time it's like you tell it to the judge you think you act in self-defense then that's what you tell the jury if it goes that far we have a homicide we got a suspect we make an arrest so here you have a homicide you know who did it Um, there are witnesses there are video so I was mother my said that yeah that's you make that determination um, so you can go ahead and make the arrest. But since you have this investigative body that always comes in and you know that they are investigating, um, I don't necessarily see why you wouldn't wait for them to finish their investigation and turn over their findings. But uh, what are your I, thoughts about that part?
1: Well, I, you know, I, I agree with you. I've sat down with you multiple times and had discussions with, with, uh, different prosecutors about cases where we have what we believe in our own investigation and in reviewing the discovery and having our own conversations with different witnesses and family members, uh, a reasonable request to, you know, conduct further investigation or, you know, go and question somebody before you put this case on for the charges that you're putting it on for, because, you know, the the circumstances surrounding what's happened, to this John Doe that we're representing, uh, you might find in that what we're seeing, and it doesn't have to be what, you, what you're what you saying it's going to be. In other words, uh, the charges that you've got against our client, we don't think fits the actual facts of the story if you'll just take the time to investigate it further. And we've gotten a lot of pushback on that. Uh, so I, I was also confused as to how quickly, I mean, it was 11 counts which you know for for that many counts uh, that 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 requires a lot of time and energy and effort to to look at the facts and circumstances of the case. I think there there are possibly two two explanations that in in the research that I've done and in looking at all of the news sources uh, that I've looked at could be used. You know this whole interaction, the whole thing start to finish from the drive through to the parking space to outside of the car. To the altercation, to uh, the chase, the shots from Mr. the the taser shot fire from Mr. Brooks, the gunfire from former officer Rolfe, and him lying in the parking lot. All of it's on video, and pretty much everyone has seen it. So it's out there in the public eye. It's out there in the public view, uh, and you're not. In other words, it's not a case where all of this happened and there's no video footage. So you have to rely on. An investigative group or third party to make factual determinations or determine what actually happened from pulling in different eyewitnesses that didn't pull their phone out and video it or looking at surveillance footage. You're looking to talk to the employees of the Wendy's, any patrons that were there that night that are willing to talk to you uh, because you do run into that in cases too where maybe somebody was there but they don't want to inject themselves into the case or be called to testify so they don't have anything to say about it. Um, you don't have those circumstances in this case, so you could see that the investigation is, at least in the prosecutor's office's mind, more clear cut than most because you have basically an A to B, start to finish Mm -hmm. video layout of everything that occurred. Um, the other aspects of it that's been brought up or been brought to my attention is that there is some, um, dissension in the ranks or some uh, animosity between the prosecutor's office, D.A. Howard, and the GBI because there's an investigation into several of the actions of Prosecutor Howard. I don't want to get into too much of the politicization of everything uh, and the ties to the protests uh, and also, you know, running for office, things of that nature. But there's been a lot alluded to as to, um, you know, just I guess the way I can put it, without going into all the details of, of everything and trying to smear anyone or make anyone look bad is that there is animosity between the, the DA that, that came across with the charges and the GBI. So this could be a, uh, you know, a, little, bit, a little bit of a situation where you're acting on your, own, uh, on your own accord because you don't want to wait for them to finish the investigation. Because like I said, you got everything in front of you that you need. If they come out with a different determination, that'll be for them to come up with on their own. So those are the two things that I think are possible reasonable conclusions to, to assert as to why they're they're operating sort of independently. Um, and anything beyond that would just be so highly speculative that it wouldn't even be worth the time in, in going into.
0: Yeah, I think that is going to be interesting if they come out with different recommendation for charges. I think the whole background info, like I said, no need to you know go into it. But the whole background between the GBI and Fulton County DA's office, as well as Fulton County, you know, which talked about Fulton County DA's office describing a taser as deadly in one case and non-deadly in another. I think those things play into potential change of venue motions. Yes. Um, I'm looking at our time and we have court coming up um, in terms of how long it's gonna take us to drive out of county uh, to, to get there. So I wanna like put a, a pin here and say that when we come back, let's talk about in terms of, start from that view, that point of where let's talk about more about the change of venue, what that means we talked about felony murder in the beginning, but it's kind of like for our next one, let's talk about felony murder, how it relates to this case. And are there um, theories for any like potential other charges? For instance, when I say potential other charges, to me, it's kind of rare where a prosecutor's office goes for felony murder when it is an intentional shooting. Um, other person felony murder makes it maybe like easier, but normally when if someone aims, shoots, and says "I got him," um, we don't see just felony murder um, in in those right. cases. But hey, that would be like a little like foreshadowing, like for you, like let's let's, let's start with that. Uh, yeah, that's good. Yeah, and I like so, to go uh,
1: through. I'd like to go through too in the next episode. The all eleven counts because there's as much as we've talked and fo- focused on the taser. There's also another charge that's pretty significant in how it's being depicted and used by the DA's office as another potential uh, deadly force um, use, which has to do with uh, officer Ross boot. uh, When it in one part of the video, it appears that, that he kicks Mr. Brooks after he's down. So there's a lot more, there's a lot more meat on the bone when it comes to this case as to the counts that have been raised, the charges that have come forward. And, and I do agree it's, it seems uh, somewhat reminiscent of a Minneapolis type situation where you could have gone for first degree murder and say there was intent and, and premeditation on behalf of the officer, but you just don't go there. Here, at least with felony murder, you're getting the same, you're getting the same uh, effect uh, as far as sentencing goes of, you know, possible life prison or death penalty sentence, if they go capital with the, the charge based on the underlying charges to get at least the same result without lessering the degree of sentencing. So
0: a lot of meat on the bone. I look forward to handling that. All right. All right. So we'll see you all for our next episode and I'll see Joshua shortly in court. (laughs) See you there, man. (laughs) All right.